day, Joseph said to them, Do this and you will live, for I fear God. If you are honest men, let one of your brothers remain confined where you are in custody, and let the rest go and carry grain for the famine of your households, and bring your youngest brother to me, so your words will be verified and he shall not die. And they did so. Then they said to one another, In truth, we are guilty concerning our brother, in that we saw the distress of his soul when he begged us, and we did not listen. That is why this distress has come upon us. And Reuben answered them, Did I not tell you not to sin against the boy? But you did not listen. So now there comes a reckoning for his blood. They did not know that Joseph understood them, for there was an interpreter between them. Then he turned away from them and wept, and he returned to them and spoke to them, and he took Simeon from them and bound him before their eyes. And Joseph gave orders to fill their bags with grain and to replace every man's money in his sack and to give them provision for the journey. This was done for them. Then they loaded their donkeys with their grain and departed. And as one of them opened his sack to give his donkey fodder at the lodging place, he saw his money in the mouth of his sack. He said to his brothers, My money has been put back. Here it is in the mouth of my sack. At this their hearts failed them, and they turned, trembling to one another, saying, What is this that God has done to us? When they came to Jacob their father in the land of Canaan, They told him all that had happened to them, saying, The man, the lord of the land, spoke roughly to us and took us to be spies of the land. But we said to him, We are honest men, we have never been spies. We are twelve brothers, sons of our father. One is no more, and the youngest is this day with our father in the land of Canaan. Then the man, the lord of the land, said to us, By this I shall know that you are honest men. Leave one of your brothers with me, and take grain for the famine of your households, and go your way. Bring your youngest brother to me. Then I shall know that you are not spies, but honest men, and I will deliver your brother to you, and you shall trade in the land. As they emptied their sacks, behold, every man's bundle of money was in his sack. And when they and their father saw their bundles of money, they were afraid. And Jacob their father said to them, You have bereaved me of my children. Joseph is no more, and Simeon is no more. And now you would take Benjamin? All this has come against me. Then Reuben said to his father, Kill my two sons if I do not bring him back to you. Put him in my hands, and I will bring him back to you. But he said, My son shall not go down with you. For his brother is dead, and he is the only one left. If harm should happen to him on the journey that you are to make, you would bring down my grey hairs with sorrow to Sheol. Well, let's pray. Let's ask God to help us as we look at this chapter together for the second time. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, thank you that our children in the hall next to us and And we in here, Lord, are able to look into what you have said, what you have revealed to creation, Lord, and to understand you, to understand ourselves. And we ask, God, that as we look at words on a page, that the Holy Spirit 
will speak to us, to each of us, and, and Lord, hold up your word to us like a mirror that we might see ourselves clearly, see ourselves as you see us, and respond to what you say. So, Lord, good and kind and gracious and generous God, oh God, bless us, we pray, for we ask in Jesus' name, amen. Last week, we began to look at this chapter, this chapter 42 of our series in Genesis, and for the sake of having some sense of structure to the narrative, we looked at how the brothers were sent by Jacob, then at how the brothers were seen by Joseph, and then finally at how the brothers were stricken by God. The famine has reached Canaan, and so Jacob has sent uh, his ten sons to Egypt to buy grain for the family. And, and when they arrive, it's Joseph they meet, who is the seller. That's it's unlikely that Joseph would have been stood there himself selling the grain. I mean, he's like the prime minister of Egypt, the second in command of Egypt. But it just so happens that the day that they go to Egypt, there is Joseph, and they meet Joseph, and so on and so forth. The, the brothers didn't recognize their brother. This was the brother that they had sold into Egypt about 22 years ago. They didn't recognize him, stood there dressed as an Egyptian, but he recognized them. And so begins three chapters or so of Joseph doing with them, in principle, what they did with him. Not out of revenge, not out of spite. Joseph wasn't stood there thinking, well, now I've got them, you know, I'm going to give them a hard time. That's not what he's thinking here. But Joseph wants to assess how his brothers now are. He knows who they are, but he wants to know how they are. Are they still... 10 angry men, and they said 12 angry men after the film. Are they still 10 angry men? Would they still hate him if they met him? Have they had time to truly reflect and change? And the impression we get from what they say in verse 21 onwards, those are key verses really, the impression we get is that the memory of the past and what they had done to Joseph hadn't been forgotten by them, but actually with a little bit of pickling, a little bit of poking, it's just beneath the surface. It's just below their exterior that they give off through day-to-day -day life. In truth, we are guilty concerning our brother, and that we saw the distress of his soul when he begged us and we didn't listen. That is why this, this distress, they are distressed, you see, that is why this distress has come upon us. In treating them as they had treated him, Joseph has facilitated the means by which God now uses to stoke up memories of the past and to incite guilt and shame. God had used these distressing circumstances to stir their consciences, and now they are experiencing injustices, ill-treatment, and accusation, and so on and so forth. And through all of this, God is stirring them. God is provoking them. God is at work in them to experience guilt. Of course, before we can experience forgiveness, before we can experience the relief and the joy that, that comes from forgiveness, we first of all have to experience the discomfort of guilt, the uncomfortable feeling of guilt. It's interesting how today's society would view experiencing guilt. They would redefine it as poor mental health. And therefore, you know, you want to avoid that. Do everything you can to avoid feeling such negative feelings. 
Arguably, that's what lies behind much of the obsession of these days, it seems, of re-educating our children and our adults that homosexuality is not sinful, but it's something that's perfectly natural, something that's perfectly acceptable. Whereas, indeed, the guilt and the shame that ought to be experienced and felt from homosexuality is what, indeed, God uses to lead someone to repentance but of course that can be hampered if even the Church of England now says homosexual relationships are a good thing. The very church itself says these things are to be celebrated and blessed. Justin Welby, for example, I quote, is extremely joyful at proposals to allow clergy to offer God's blessing to same-sex couples who have legally married. Stephen Cottrell, the Archbishop of York, has said, and I quote, I will celebrate the fact that people are living that way and expressing their intimacy that way. So whilst the leaders of the Church of England are joyful and they celebrate such sin, the ultimate authority of God's word says otherwise. 1 Corinthians chapter 6 verse 9 says, Don't you realize that those who do wrong will not inherit the kingdom of God? Don't fool yourself, Paul writes. Those who indulge in sexual sin or those who worship idols or commit adultery or are male prostitutes or who practice homosexuality or are thieves or greedy persons or drunkards or who are abusive or cheat people, none of these will inherit the kingdom of God. Some of you were once like that, he says, but you were cleansed, you were made holy, you were made right with God by calling on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. You see, it's the stricken conscience that is led to call upon the name of the Lord Jesus for that person then to be cleansed, to be, as Paul describes, to be sanctified, to be justified by God. But when, as according to Psalm 11, verse 3, the foundations are being destroyed, as with the Church of England, what then can the righteous do? Now, these 10 men have lived with 22 years of suppressed unrepented sin. And unless your conscience has been completely seared and deadened to any movement from God, then it only takes the, the distress of circumstances, as Joseph does here with them, for you to be taken back to what happened, to what you did, to what you said, and for God's Holy Spirit to lead you, a broken and contrite spirit, to forgiveness and peace and joy in Jesus Christ. The question I want to look at a bit this morning from last week is to ask the question, yes, they show remorse, but have they genuinely repented? They certainly sound remorseful, don't they? Their language suggests a change of sort has occurred, or it is occurring, but is it genuine biblical repentance? In other words, they're remorseful there, and I have pictured them there. You know, Joseph has come to their prison cell. They've been locked up for three days. He opens the door and out they come. So there at the prison door, they are remorseful. But is it just because of their circumstances they're having a bad day? And actually, given the chance, they would leave their youngest brother, Benjamin, there just so they could go home again. Is it genuine? Sometimes you hear those people on aircraft and, you know, the turbulence comes at really dreadful and <laughs> suddenly God exists. God is real because their life has been shaken by this turbulence in their life. But when the captain says, it's okay, folks, we've come through it, everything's okay, and they go, oh, I'm, I'm, an, I'm actually an atheist. <laughs> is this what has happened here with these ten brothers? Their life has gone through a type of a turbulence of sorts, and so, yes, they're feeling guilty, they're feeling remorseful, but actually, once they get back to Egypt, they'll be fine. This must have been a Joseph's mind. Otherwise, he wouldn't have continued with everything he does next. 
So is this a moment of regret or is it genuine biblical repentance? What does it mean to repent? Have you repented of your sin? Have you repented as the Bible describes repentance? Let's look at repentance this morning for a while. What is repentance? Well, first of all, repentance isn't merely a sense of being sorry because we were found out. Repentance is not merely a sense of being sorry because we were found out. As you know, I've been reading Alistair Begg. He's very helpful. I hope you're enjoying that book, The Hand of God. We recommend it to you. He gives a very helpful illustration of what that means. A mother calls through into the kitchen and says to the child who's just learning to tell the time, what is the big hand on? And the little boy takes his hand away from the freshly made biscuits, feeling somehow or another that his mother can see through the walls and he can't believe that she would ask what his hand is on. She's actually asking what is the big hand on on the clock. But his conscience is stirred, you see, by what she says. His conscience is stirred by a sense of guilt at having been found out. And so she comes into the kitchen and finds him all covered in crumbs and chocolate chips and all of that evidence against him. And she goes, I, but I told you not to touch those. So he feels sorry and he begins, oh, I'm really, 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 really sorry. Please, 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 please. And the question is, is that an expression of genuine biblical repentance? We don't know yet, he writes. We don't know until she goes upstairs. As soon as she goes upstairs, we find out. As soon as the vacuum cleaner turns on and his hand goes right back in the jar for another one, you know that what he expressed was momentarily sorrow at, the, at having been caught. But it was not a genuine desire to turn from something that had been identified as wrongful activity for him. You see that? The Bible describes repentance as something more radical Repentance is not merely feeling sorrowful and sorry. It involves that for sure. But biblical repentance is a real, mental, willful, observable re reversal of someone's behavior. I can still remember the morning Jonathan Press took the children's talk and he was talking to them about repentance and he asked the kids, what does repentance mean? And he got them all to stand up and turn around and look at you. And he said, that's repentance. That's when you turn around, you face the opposite direction to which you were facing. That's what repentance looks like. It's a, an about turn of behavior where you, you stop what you're doing that scripture has revealed as sinful you turn from it, from doing it, from considering it, from playing with it, from flirting with it. You turn from it and you turn towards God to now do as he wants you to do. As you read through the New Testament, you see in some of Paul's letters the, uh, the way he pictures it in terms of someone getting dressed. They're changing their clothes. And so he talks of someone taking off their old clothes and that person, that same person, putting on some new clothes. It's in another place, in a several places but in Colossians chapter 3 he he calls the Christians and that church at Colossae to put to death which is very strong language to say stop doing it but put to death certain behavioral patterns related to how they used to live before they became a Christian he lists a few of them in verse 5 put to death sexual immorality and that's a, a general term the Greek is porneia it's not just pornography it's a, a general term for any sexual activity outside heterosexual marriage. You see, first century morality was like today. And so Paul was wanting the church, the first century church, 
to stop doing what the world of that day tended to do, just like today, getting worse and worse today. If Paul was writing this letter today, he would write something extremely similar uh, to what he wrote back then for the Christians at Colossae. He says, you used to do things like that. That's how you used to live before you were converted. Back then when you were very much part of this world, but now, he says, you're different. Now you're God's people. So verse 8, you must rid yourselves of all such things as these. And he lists other things. Anger, rage, and malice, and slander. Filthy language from your lips. Do not lie to each other since you have, listen, taken off your old self with its practices and have put on the new self which is being renewed in knowledge in the image of its creator. He wants them to repent. What does repentance then look like for someone who tells lies, who has a filthy language? No, 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 let's leave that. Let's talk about telling lies. What does repentance look like for someone like that? Well, first of all, the person recognizes that to tell lies is wrong. It's sinful. Why do I think it's sinful? Well, because the Bible tells me so. That's why. It doesn't matter what the Archbishop of Anywhere says. It doesn't matter what social media says. It doesn't matter what Madonna at the Grammys say. Have you heard what happened last week? Terrible. The, um, it's awful. It doesn't matter what they say. It's what God says. And God says it's wrong. And as with other such things, he hates it. It's not something that the world would say, celebrate it. Celebrate your diversity. You're different from everyone else, and so live it and celebrate it. God says, no, hate it, shun it, run from it, repent of it. So the person humbles himself and submits to what God says, and with the help of God's Spirit, they stop doing it. They put off, they turn about from telling lies, all sorts of lies, half lies, sweet little lies, as Fleetwood Mac would sing. They turn away from it, and instead, they put on, they turn towards either only telling the truth, or you say nothing and walk away from the conversation. But each of us, led by the Spirit, led by the Holy Spirit, each of us needs to respond to what God says to us in Scripture. We need to pray as the psalmist does in Psalm 139, verse 2, uh, verse 23. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. Point out anything in me that offends you and lead me along the path of everlasting life. Why would God point out anything that would offend him? Not in his word. And as our Father in heaven, as he tenderly stirs our conscience and holds up that scripture before us as a mirror to show us what he sees, to show us our own sin, each of us needs to apply that practice of repentance to whatever it is that... <clears throat> God reveals to us, whether it's what you do with your mouth, what you do with your hands, what you do with your feet, or whatever it is, but we turn about, we, we turn from it, we put off, and we put on, we repent, and walk in the light as he is in the light, 1 John 1 verse 7. For if we do that, we're promised the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. One more thing before we move on. How often do I need to repent? I asked you that question, have you repented? As though you only do it once and then you move on. How often should we repent? Do I just repent at conversion and then away we go for the rest of our lives and, you know, where we go? How often? It's interesting when Martin Luther in 1517, that great reformer, the one who in that day led a, a reformation, a response to the corruption of the church in his day, he nailed those 95 theses to the church door in Wittenberg. And what do you think the very first statement was he wrote? In opposition to the 
the corruption of the church as they taught then. Uh, statement number one said, when our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said repent, he meant the entire life of believers should be one of repentance. In other words, as the Spirit of God, by the Word of God, informs our minds and stirs our consciences as to what pleases Him or what displeases Him, then as we grow in the grace and knowledge of God, we repent of what we learn to be sinful. We stop doing it today, tomorrow, the day after that, and so forth. The whole of life is a daily experience of repenting and turning back God. We turn away from what we discover displeases him and in its place we start to do or rather we learn to do because sometimes it doesn't happen just like that does it? Some of us are still learning to overcome stubborn sins. We're trying to learn different habits. Some of us in certain situations we find ourselves in a stressful place and our natural instinct is to go back to revert back to handling that stress as we did in our old lives. But now we discover that's, that's wrong, we shouldn't do that. We shouldn't turn to drink every time I feel uncomfortable. We shouldn't turn to sex every time I feel stressed. God has taught me a better way, a new way, and so on. We're learning to turn from that and turning to walk in the way he wants us to walk. And it takes time. But are you learning to do it? Are you repenting day by day? Because as we do that, in actual fact, we become more and more like our Lord Jesus Christ. We reflect his glory more and more as how he lived before God and man. Well, let's move on from thinking about repentance in relation to God's gracious stirring of our consciences to thinking about these brothers again and how uncomfortable they felt experiencing Joseph's generosity towards them. Do you see there in verse 25 how generous Joseph is? These are people who have deeply offended him. Do you remember? We can't go back over it all. We haven't time. But they were terrible to their little brother. And yet look at how generous he is. Joseph gave orders to fill their bags with grain. That's what they wanted. Do you remember? That's why they came to Egypt. He gave orders to fill their bags with grain and to replace every man's money in his sack and to give them provisions for the journey. So he didn't simply give them what they came and asked for. He gave them that and above and beyond that. He gave them grain, he gave them their money, and he gave them provisions for their journey. Why did he do that? Love. love. This was a gesture of love on Joseph's part. This was a, a demonstration of his kindness and grace. And if you do remember any of what they had done to him, then they certainly didn't deserve any of this. <laughs> they did not deserve such kindness and generosity from him. Maybe if I was Joseph, I would have taken the money and filled their bags with sand. would have tricked them. But Joseph's not like that. In his compassion towards them, he shows them grace. He shows them generosity, which surely must take us forward again today to the greater Joseph. I keep saying this, Joseph is wonderful and brilliant, but he's just, he's just a shadow of the greater Joseph, the Lord Jesus Christ. When we think of how we have repeatedly offended him, Jesus, whatever it is we do with our hands or our feet, mouth, our eyes, whatever it is we do, but how much we've offended him, how much we've grieved, how much we've disregarded him, how little attention we've given him. We've barely recognized the daily mercies he shows to us. Whilst we deserve his judgment, still, still he is gracious to us. Still he is generous to us. And so following along the theme of this morning's message from such a passage as this, the question is, how do we respond to such grace? How do you and I respond to such 
generosity. We think of what Paul writes to the Christians in Rome, Romans 2 verse 4. He says, do you presume on, or the NIV says, show contempt for the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. But in recognizing God's generosity towards us, we would be humbled by that. We would be brought to genuinely repent and turn from our sins. And again, today, this morning even, as we reflect on this, but we would bow to Jesus Christ and say, Lord, not what I've been wanting, not what I've been doing, but what you want, how you want me to. How do we respond? How do we tend to respond to such grace? I suspect, as the ESV puts, out, puts it, we presume on it. I very rarely read this translation. It's the message. It's paraphrased, sometimes terribly paraphrased. It says this, listen, did you think that because he's such a nice God, he'd let you off the hook? That's it. And unless we're aware of God's patient, gracious generosity towards it, we'll either take it for granted and just carry on as we mean to go on. Or in our ignorance, we respond as these brothers did. Look at them, verses 28 and 35. They open their sacks and find their money returned to them. At this, it says, their hearts failed them. And they turned trembling to one another, saying, What is this that God has done to us? There's a great suspicion about them over such great generosity. We saw, didn't we, in verse 21, they knew that they didn't deserve such generosity. Do you remember how we looked at that word distress? They had attached their distress and their ill treatment with God reacting to them for what they had done to their little brother. And now here they open the bag, one of them does at least, and it seems they're at the opposite end of their circumstances where they're now experiencing generosity. And they're thinking, what is this that God has done to us? They're afraid. They're uncomfortable. They're unable to properly process such apparent blessing. And they know they don't deserve it. Because they can't yet link their experience of this blessing with the person who loves them, who has blessed them, Joseph, then they're suspicious. I think there's something of that in how we often react to the gospel of Jesus Christ. When we know that we've offended a holy God, we've offended a, a just and almighty God, and yet still because of him, because of his love and his extravagant grace, still he is kindly. He does not treat us as our sins deserve. He's generous to us, and at times it's uncomfortable. Humble. We feel we can't just take it, thank him, bless him, but we feel we ought to do something. We ought to earn this something. We ought to be worthy of this something. Because the only thing we ought to do is repent, is to humble ourselves before such extravagant grace and generosity and say, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. I don't deserve any of this, but you have given me Jesus. We close this morning and bringing this chapter to a close just very briefly looking at Jacob because he's in, the, he's in the story, isn't he? Jacob's reaction to the news of what's happened. You have that narrative where the, the brothers retell to their dad, Jacob, what the Lord of the land said. Remember who that is? That's Joseph. It's, it's very surreal, all of this. They're talking about their brother to the father of the son. And nobody knows who he is. But they convey the story of what happened about how the Lord of the land said they needed to return with Benjamin. And you see here how Joseph is quite adamant in verse 38. My son shall not go down with you. He is strongly adamant in this. The commentator Joyce Baldwin writes this. 
Jacob, in his old age, bears all the characteristics we are accustomed to associate with the very elderly. He dominates the family. He sees issues in stark terms of black and white. He makes assertions with ex- which express his own passionate feelings, but everyone knows that he will have to go back on what he has so categorically stated. It's exactly what we find him doing in this next chapter. Chapter 43 will come to after half-term break. Because there, you see, Jacob illustrates a kind of repentance where Jacob is changing his determined mind and he does the very thing he had so strongly opposed doing. What caused this repentance? Well, we'll get there eventually, but in chapter 43 it begins, doesn't it? Now the famine was severe in the land. In other words, what a sovereign God had ordained to come into the life of this adamant, obstinate man which threatens his very family, even threatens the very boy, Benjamin, he so dearly is concerned for. But it's that that God uses to force Jacob to repent, to change his mind and allow his precious son to go down to Egypt with his brothers. I think as we close, it's those sorts of severe circumstances which our father may well weave into the tapestry of our lives or even into the lives of those we love the lives of those we pray for that they might repent that their adamant hardened hearts might be softened and brought to god they aren't pleasant circumstances are they they're uncomfortable they're even possibly painful but in god's mercy and god's kindness in his love and his generous grace they may well indeed be the very means he uses to soften such an adamant heart that once would say, I will not repent. I will not come back to my creator, God. But give God time. And maybe in his time, one day they might say, Lord Jesus, what must I do to be saved? May that happen. May that happen. Amen. Let's pray together. God, our Father, we thank you for the life of Joseph. We thank you, Lord, for what we have seen of human responses to unrecognized kindness and we pray god that for each of us lord that you would open our eyes to see the the daily blessing you bring to us lord not because we deserve it but because of who you are lord indeed may our recognition of your kindness lead to genuine repentance in each one of us forgive us lord that we have withstood you for so long we have pushed back against you for so long but now we pray may the holy spirit come to us in in fresh measure, and change our hearts. Take away the obstinacy in us. Change our minds. Give us courage to trust you that we can change. We can stop doing what we love dearly, that we feel a slave to. But with you in our lives, we can overcome. God, help us to do that, and to know the joy of walking in the light where you walk. Help us, O Lord, we pray, please. We ask in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen.